I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hello and welcome to Eureka, the show that gets under the skin of science in a good way as we invite a new expert every week to help us answer one of science's most interesting questions. I think you know the drill by now. Isaac Asimov once said, the most exciting phrase in science is not Eureka, but that's funny. We think you can have a bit of both, Isaac. I'm Rick Edwards and this week I'm joined by uh, a young man who's doing some work experience. Hello, Michael. <laughs> Hello. Nice to infantilise you. <laughs> uh, now let me. Hey, ask... I, by the way, I'm Dr. Michael Brooks. Oh, sorry. I've, I've just, I, I've I've just contractually got... obliged to uh, to get that across, aren't we? I've just got Michael the work experience written down here. I'm so sorry. Oh. I don't know how that happened. That's come from the production team. Yeah. Well, let me let me ask you a question. If Noah's Ark were to happen again, uh, by which I mean, if Noah's Ark were to ever happen, uh, which <laughs> which animal would you save first? Well, if it was Noah's Ark happening again, I wouldn't need to save anything in the sea, obviously, because uh, that would all be they're, fine. They're all good. Yeah. <laughs> um, kangaroo, for some reason, comes to mind. I, I think any of the marsupials. Kangaroo. I mean, uh, they're just so mad, aren't they? That's Bill Platypus. There's a lot of kangaroos. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying they are going to go extinct, yeah. but I don't like the idea of a world without them. Mm. I take your point. It'd be nice to have at least one pouched animal. Yeah, I mean, something's a bit mad. Yeah. It's definitely the way to go. Irrespective of the fact that obviously all sea creatures would be absolutely fine. I know what you're going for. Um, yeah, well, go on. The octopus? <laughs> yeah, of course the octopus. <laughs> Just in case. And not even, yeah, yeah, fine. They're all swimming around the sea. They're like, we don't need any help. But I'm like, yeah, but I like you. So I'd like you to be on, on the ark with me. Now, I sort of realised that the, the octopus probably isn't going to come into the conversation in this episode to, to, any, to any great extent. But I still couldn't resist asking our expert uh, what she thought of it. Of course you couldn't. I think octopuses are absolutely incredible and I think so many species in the sea, because we don't see them so much, then we just forget how amazing they are. They're incredible adaptations they have to very difficult conditions and the extreme threats they're facing, so I would definitely endorse octopuses. I like this lady. Already. Yeah, I was going to say it's that, like this that's is the like perfect the perfect answer. <laughs> it's yeah. like if she failed that test. Yeah. <laughs> okay, we're going to need a new expert. expert. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'm actually thinking we should ask every expert, irrespective of the subject. And any thoughts just before we get started on the octopus? <laughs> and if anyone's like, oh, not fast, Fred, I'm yeah. like, you fuck off. <laughs> and what if they say, oh yeah, I love them fried? <laughs> <laughs> that that would make me really angry. That would, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Some of my friends bait me like that. Uh, Do they order octopus deliberately when you're out? Yeah. yeah really? Yeah. 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 That's, I mean, that's bad I, I on many levels. That previous to uh, falling in love with the octopus, I did used to enjoy that sort of Italian potato and octopus salad you can get. Yeah. It's delicious. You, yeah. ca- you cannot deny that it's delicious. No. And I do sort of miss it, but I will never eat it again. No, I, I've not 
eaten octopus for years now, but every time I go to a restaurant, it's like somebody at the next table is eating octopus. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's, and, and I know how good it is. Mm. It's, it's, squid? Yeah, I eat squid. Yeah, I'll eat squid. I, 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 I'm Philip and I had a massive debate on the holiday recently about why why it's okay to eat squid and why it's not okay to eat octopus. And we couldn't come up with any good reasons apart from squid is sustainable and just not as octopusy. Uh, yeah, well, <laughs> not, not, as, not, not, as not as octopusy. I think not as clever. Yeah, not as clever. It's probably one, although I don't know that we know how clever squid are. No. Necessarily. It's convenient we're not just to know. Telling, yes, exactly. <laughs> Don't bother testing the squid because they are too delicious. <laughs> but also, it, it totally falls down because um, pigs, yeah, pigs are yeah, incredibly yeah, intelligent. Yeah. yeah. I'm wolfing down pigs are you on, still? on an almost daily basis. Are you? <laughs> <laughs> not quite that. But, but yeah. No, I, I agree. I mean, I'm still having bacon sandwiches, even though I know mm. that I shouldn't. And... Yeah, that, that's, I've got to break that. I think you know maybe that should be an aim now. Now the octopuses have gone, maybe it's 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 pigs next. Yeah, it's time for the pigs to go. I, I it is absolutely impossible to reconcile my sort of position on animals and animal conservation with the amount that I eat them. <laughs> Did I, I ever tell you about the animal consciousness researcher I interviewed? And I said, oh, what animals have you studied? And she sort of reeled off this this. And I said, have you ever studied cows? She said, no, I'll never study cows. They're too delicious because <laughs> she couldn't eat anything that she'd studied. <laughs> it makes sense, though. I mean, it's not particularly scientifically rigorous. No, no, no. <laughs> so let me just question your ethics there for a minute. <laughs> we all know the story of Noah's Ark. Noah, tasked with saving the world's animals from a world engulfing flood, builds an ark and saves them, well, not one by one, two by two. And whether you believe that to be a true story or not, spoiler, it's not. In the age of climate change, deforestation and rising sea levels, it is an interesting one to consider. The area of Amazon rainforest, roughly the size of a football pitch, is now being cleared every minute. Scientists are warning of dramatic changes at one of the biggest glaciers in Antarctica in the next five to ten years. Look back, as I was mentioning, to the Australia bushfires, because new research has found that the crisis killed and displaced Three billion animals. WWF calls it one of the worst wildlife disasters in modern history. It's almost impossible to get a figure for the number of species threatened with extinction, but it's probably about a million. Arctic polar bears are facing near extinction by the end of the century. Our Australian the icon, the koala, has been classed as endangered. Another brutal year for the rhino population. The onslaught has taken a turn for the worse. And with rates of extinction at an alarming level, we've started to cherry-pick which animals to save, and worryingly, there seems to be a distinct lack of science involved in the process. And that is why this week we're scrutinising that process, and we're asking which endangered animals do we choose to save? As ever, we've recruited an expert to help us answer today's question. And just purely <laughs> judging her by her thoughts on octopuses, she's fantastic. Um, in this episode, we're going to be speaking with the author and ecologist, Rebecca Nesbitt. Rebecca's new book is Tickets for the Ark, and it looks at the very idea of the trade-offs conservation needs to make as wildlife declines. It's really interesting, like genuinely really interesting. Uh, and the first thing I asked Rebecca was, what makes an animal qualify as endangered? It's 
based partly on their population size, how many are there left, but also on their population trends. Some animals have just always been at quite low numbers, particularly if they're confined to an island, for example, they only survive in a very small area then they might always have been at quite low numbers, but their population is stable, whereas others might have been at very high numbers, and it's the decline that's really most concerning. So I think we probably need to do a disclaimer on on this episode, which is that finally we are doing something that I know quite a lot about. Uh, because this is uh, yeah i mean at <laughs> long last this is what i studied uh, conservation and i really deeply care about it and a lot of the stuff that is done in the name of conservation is bollocks and is that the scientific the stuff, term that you yeah, learned and a lot of the stuff that is written about conservation is also bollocks right and it drives me up the wall and I think I'm going to rant quite often. Oh, I'm going to enjoy this. Yeah, I, th- right. yeah, I yeah. think you will. But it's also absolutely fascinating and crucial and a conversation that we we all should be getting involved with, I think. Yeah. And what it ultimately comes down to, I think, conservation, is sort of scientific rationalism. So looking at the science and making sensible decisions about what you should do with limited budgets. Yeah. And then it's sort of just general intuition, like the the feeling that we have about the types of animals we should be trying to save. Not the, not the feeling that we have about animals, that particular species or anything, mm, but the feeling about, okay, what might work and what might not work. Uh, unfortunately, the former. So oh, really? a lot of okay, conservation right. seems to be guided by just what do people like? And you, you get it, right? If you're working for a a conservation charity, you've got to be pragmatic and you've got to think, what am I going to be able to raise money to save? Right, yeah. And you've got to pick the right animals. And so you end up picking animals that are sort of popular or endearing to people. Right. And actually, that's not in any way a scientifically rigorous approach. (laughs) Well, no, obviously. So you're getting cuddly animals, but you're not getting monitor lizards in the fundraising Mm. campaign. Yeah, and it's interesting. Still, when you think about sort of preserving... Species, and we should really open this up to not just talk about animals, we should be talking about plants as yeah, well. Okay. Plants plants don't get a fucking look in, really. <laughs> uh, invertebrates basically don't get a fucking look in. Right. Um, because no one, uh, unless it's the bees. So bees, yeah. people have, uh, bees PR is fantastic. Yeah. <laughs> and yeah, I mean, I love bees, but I mean, I've got a little, uh, I made a sort of bee um, drinking facility to Did put you? in my little courtyard. Because yeah. <laughs> bees, bees get thirsty in the hot weather. And oh, so you just, you, you. you get a little, um, you know those kind of dishes that you put at the bottom of plant yeah, pots, yeah. and you get a load of stones, uh, and then you just you just sort of put a little bit of water, and the bees can yeah. kind of potter around and have a little drink of the water. Absolute legend. To. What have yeah. you done for the cockroaches, though? Uh, well, yes, quite. Yeah, I mean, in fairness, the cockroaches <laughs> don't really need looking. <laughs> no, they're all right. But there's all sorts of you know creepy crawlies and beetles yeah. and stuff that fundamentally will never get that kind of public engagement, and therefore very unlikely to be able to raise the money. And so then you think, okay, well maybe the government should be should be stepping in and looking after that stuff. Are they? <laughs> My not, guess is no. Not really. And you start to think about, right, what should the criteria be to try and save a species? And unfortunately, sort of charisma <laughs> like genuinely, <laughs> right. genuinely comes into it. So bees aside, really, all of the things that people will say, oh yeah, I want to save that, will be kind of charismatic megafauna. 
Right. So, so like pandas, you know, pandas, tigers, tigers, lions, polar bears, you know, whales, all that kind of stuff. Yeah. And that that's such a small <laughs> it's such a small subsection yeah. of biodiversity. And actually, I mean, if you save all of those and nothing else, they've got nothing to eat, basically. So Yeah, and, and obviously it's very complex because if you look at something like an elephant, its role within the ecosystem is absolutely vital. So actually, saving elephants has a big knock-on effect right. on the rest of the ecosystem, positively. It's very complicated, but we don't really, I don't think, approach it in the right way. Okay. And we're, we're starting to a bit more. I mean, to be fair, you could think about other criteria, like is edibility, is that something that you should, should we thinking where we should be trying to save the stuff that we can eat? Maybe, not necessarily. I don't think it should all be about us, though. Well, no, that's 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 the other thing. Also, we make this artificial separation. So nature is obviously just a, the, the sort of the concept of nature is a kind of social construct anyway. Yeah, yeah. Um, but we also put a, a, this kind of dividing line between us and nature. Whereas actually, that's nonsense as well. Like yeah. We are we are part of nature. Uh, another, I'm just going to list all the things I think we we do wrong. Uh, another thing that we often fall into a trap of is looking at conservation as a way of trying to uh, go sort of preserve stuff or just look to the past. So kind of go, I'm going to try and create what was as opposed to what it should be, which is what do you want in the future? Yeah. That, that's the only sensible way to approach it, in my view, rather than trying to think, oh, I'm going to try and reverse human interference over the last 10,000 years. It's not going to happen. No, because as you it. say, we're part of the network, aren't we? Basically. Part, part of the network. And also, you are not going to achieve that aim. No. Just just look forward. But when you, when you really start trying to analyse it properly, sort of almost doing like cost-benefit analysis, you do end up with some quite uncomfortable and counterintuitive conclusions that are quite hard to sell. Okay. Um, getting a handle on how many species are in trouble is really, really difficult. We don't even know how many species of animals and plants there are in the world. Just, okay. just, just don't know. There's, there's too many. So there's, I think there's a UN estimate which says it's pretty, it might be about a million. But, is that because it's just too hard to catalogue everything? Yeah. 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 And particularly with particularly invertebrates, I think. Yeah. I mean, not, they, they reckon that 97% of species on the planet are invertebrates. Well, they're doing fine then. Let's leave them. W uh, well, in the last 40 years, 45% decline in invertebrates across the board, uh. which, is, which is big. I'm gonna, I'm gonna have, uh, I'm gonna really lose my rag uh, about <laughs> so, about some statistical stuff soon, but I'll leave, I'll leave that for now. All right. So, so how how are we making decisions then? I mean, what, what what do we do? Given how little we know and how big the problem is, you know, what what do we do? So, so what what you do is you try and categorise. You, you you look at species. So, like the red list, for example, is the is the famous list that kind yeah, of you know, yeah. compiles yeah you know, the species that are in, in in trouble and the species that aren't. And they looked at they look at I think it's a it's just under a hundred thousand. It's like ninety six thousand species. Then they categorise, and there are seven. There are seven levels. So you've got least concern, so basically fine. Uh, you've got near threatened, pretty much fine. Uh, then you've got vulnerable, endangered, and critically endangered. Those that's yeah. Your, your, your problem zone. Then you've got extinct in the wild, which is exactly what it sounds like. So there's some yeah. in captivity, but none left in the wild, and then extinct. And so they they've they've classified, um, yeah, like I say, ninety six. I think it's ninety six and a half thousand species. I think twenty six thousand, something like that, fall into the uh, endangered. So vulnerable, endangered, or critically endangered. Wow, which is quite a lot. Yeah, I mean um, that's getting towards a third. Yeah, so that's yeah, 
And if you look at, this is not from the red list actually, but 25% of mammals are threatened with extinction. 31% of sharks and, and rays are the same family. 14% of birds, 33% of uh, reef corals, uh, 40% of amphibians. And 40% of amphibians? Yeah, yeah. Wow. So we've got a real problem. And, yeah. and actually, you will hear people say, yeah, but extinction is just part of life's rich tapestry. It's always been going <laughs> on. And in fairness, 98% of species that have ever existed on the planet have gone extinct. That is true. But you can also... Yes, precisely. Now. So there is a sort of background rate of extinction. And we are currently... Yeah, I don't think it's, I don't think it's particularly controversial to say we are currently living through the sixth mass extinction. Yeah, I've heard that phrase. Yeah. Um, so there, there have been five big ones before. Now, they've all been due to some form of natural catastrophe. Obviously, the most famous one is the one that 66 million years ago that, that whacked out the dinosaurs yeah. when, when, the, when the meteorite hit. But this, this sixth mass extinction during the Anthropocene is all due to human activity. And you can look at the background rate of extinction. So you can kind of take, for example, mammals and say pre-humans and, and sort of just normally, if you like, whatever that means, every 700 years you might see one mammal go extinct. And at the moment, it's more like a thousand. So we are orders of magnitude wow. greater than the background rate. So this is, a, you know, it, it's a it's a massive, massive problem. And when you look at these endangered species and you try and work out the, the, the position that they're in, there's lots of different factors. So as Rebecca was saying, you, you look at, at various things. So you look at sort of population reduction rate, that's quite important. And that on the whole, is driven by habitat loss. Ha- habitat loss is the, is, the, is the main driver, whether that's through agriculture or, um, you know, human other forms of human encroachment or climate change. That's that's the sort of big driver of, of this at the moment. Then you've got, you know, uh, you look at their geographic range, you look at the population size, although population size doesn't necessarily tell you everything could because if it's sort of stable even if it's low that's not necessarily an issue and then you look at probability of extinction and so that that how you calculate that there's quite complicated formulas really but you effectively say what are the chances of this species surviving without any human help without any human right. protection and you and you kind of you, so you use all of these things and then and then you try and categorize them into those those seven categories um so I'm, I'm wondering whether our um our expert has actually gone extinct now yes do, yeah, do, that's, do, that's, sorry. Do, do we need her I, i'm gonna do um <laughs> uh i'm, I'm gonna I'm, I'm so sorry i'm gonna do my rant now that wasn't my rant that, well, that rant. wasn't even that, the rant. That, okay. that wasn't the rant the producers the rant, are sweating the, now the, the rant the rant is this so there's a thing that you will probably you might not have heard of it but you'd absolutely recognize the headlines and this is quite recent. There's a thing called the Living Planet Index, and it's a biodiversity metric. Uh, and and all over the press, it was like, yeah, a few months ago, um, it was saying there's been an average decline of 68% across wildlife populations since 1970. And everyone sees on this because you're like, fuck, yeah, yeah, that's yeah. We, massive. Yeah. Since 1970, 68% of wildlife has died out. I mean, to be fair, I was born that year, so you know that's yeah. the positive. Okay, yeah. So yeah, it's, it's sort of um, yeah, swings around about swings. Yeah, and uh, you are younger than I thought. Uh, <laughs> so when you look at what the Living Planet Index is actually telling you, it's telling you very little, but it's very headline grabby. Yeah, yeah. So 
I mean, what, what you, you interpret it for me. If I say to you, 68% decline since 1970 across tens of thousands of wildlife populations. What does that mean? Well, to me, to my maths brain, that means nothing because it doesn't give me enough information to make any qualitative sort of, you know, or quantitative analysis of it. Exactly that. So, so this. So, six, I mean, you're saying 68%, and I just hear like, oh, 68% of species is gone. Well, that's not what you said. Nope. And uh, it's not 68% of, you know, populations have gone. Nope. So I don't know what it's 68% of, to be honest. That's, that's the thing. It, so it doesn't tell us anything about the number of species. It doesn't tell you anything about populations. It doesn't tell you about in individuals that no. have been lost. It doesn't tell you about number of extinctions. It doesn't tell you about the share of species that no. are, uh, are declining. It doesn't look at uh, anything except vertebrates. And it's only looking at about, I think it's 20,000 populations of about 4,000 species. The tropics are underrepresented uh, relative to Europe and, and, and North America. So why does this get such play then? I, I think it because it's who, quite... Who it's, issues it? Or? It's an easy number, in a sense, to quote, and journalists can pick up on it, and it yeah. sort of tells the story that they want to tell, which is that wildlife is in trouble. But it actually doesn't tell you anything yeah. until you start looking into it a, 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 a bit more. And the species that they're looking at it's not representative of of anything. It's, it doesn't tell you anything about the wider. Like there's there's millions and millions and millions of species, and we're looking at four thousand sort of at random. It's it's vertebrates. So basically, because it's just easier to to do with vertebrates, it's easier to count bears than it is to count ants. Yeah, do you know what I mean. Yeah, I'm with and, them on that. Uh, yeah, and the, the fact is, the averages in certainly in this context are just not helpful. Yeah. Because they're so affected by outliers, and it's the outliers that you should be interested in. So it, it, it totally hides the populations that are in dramatic decline. It also hides any that are in, in recovery. Um, and I can sort of give... And, and, sorry, it, it does, it does get, get my goat. But they even Ironically. they separate populations. So a population is just something in a specific geographic area. Yeah. So you can have the same species in a different area, but they'll be treated as different populations, which then totally warps the figures. And they're yeah. not weighted. It's not even like a weighted average. Sorry, so who is issuing this nonsense? I, well, I don't... I actually, but It I does get picked up. and It, does, it, it gets picked it, up more so, than any other thing. It's, it's, it's the one thing that I think really cuts through. Playing devil's advocate, at least it gets the idea of conservation into the headlines. Whereas if you give all the subtleties and all the nuance of of how this is going, because you know, yeah, as you've said, yeah, it's yeah. an incredibly complex equation to really represent this fairly, then we end uh, up doing mm, nothing, don't we? Because mm, you can't mm, get the public mm, sort of on board to, to mm, get behind it. Mm. So I can kind of see why they're doing it, even though it is nonsense. Because what you want is for the public to panic. But, but why not just, why not lie then? I mean, what, I mean, if you're just trying to sort of sway the public, like, I mean, you might, because you, you're giving because something that is meaningless. You can't do that. You, you know, if it comes out that you're lying, mm. that's one thing, but actually just provoking people to think about it, mm. which is but what it's definitely provoking does. me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I'll give you that. It's provoked me a great deal. Um, Anyway, that's my... Um, that's anyway. my but it's right, like I say, it's, it's sort of in the sweet spot. It's like bad maths uh, and animal <laughs> conservation together <laughs> winding me up. Um, and, and I won't apologise. Uh, it makes me cross. 
Ooh, now then. Let's get back to the script, did, shall we? We did have a... We, was that not in the script? No. Um, <laughs> I've just been speaking pretty solidly for about 20 minutes, uh, and I imagine I'm quite red in the face. <laughs> <laughs> all right, so uh, if we've got so many endangered animals, animals going extinct all the time, how do we make that decision? So I asked Rebecca to explain that to us. I think to some extent, no one is setting the agenda. We're all sort of slightly bumbling along. There are lots of large conservation charities who are very, very influential and have done amazing work. And they are partly guided by what they think they can sell, what animals are going to attract donations. Also, in terms of research funding, various common popular animals get a lot of funding. If we think, for example, about the bees, lots of people are very keen on bees, particularly honeybees, and they that means it attracts funding for research as well as for conservation, and that means we know more about them, so we know more about which species might be endangered and how than we do about the wasps, for example. We don't even know to the nearest 100,000 how many species of wasp there are because it's just not attracting so much attention in any way. I think a lot of people like the physical characteristics, how a species looks, and that species with big eyes, for example, are very appealing. Species that have characters that maybe they have similar behaviour that we can relate to. Uh, Monkeys being a bit cheeky, for example, they're quite human-like, and that's what attracts people. So I think you would say there's not a lot of real science behind how these issues are decided. No, I mean, a lot of it is is ultimately guided by the the general public. Um, And as we were saying, like what they what they like um, and the sort of animals that we find cute. I mean, you'll know this, but so we obviously, from an evolutionary point of view, find human babies cute because that's important mm. for the survival of the species that we want to care for them. Um, and there's, there's, certain, there's a sort of baby schema. So the things that we like about babies' appearances. So chubby cheeks, uh, big eyes, black, big, big head, big forehead, sort of soft texture, sort of fuzzy podgy little body these are all things that we that, that, that we feel very protective of and you see I feel like it. i should be more attractive than i actually am though. yeah i was gonna say actually <laughs> you, you fit it magnificently <laughs> um but you see it in, in quite a lot of mammals um and so that kind of triggers a similar re- response to us so you get a kind of dopamine and, and, and yeah, oxytocin yeah. surge and we feel sort of a bit warm and fuzzy and it and it stimulates so effectively a, we can't help ourselves no no not 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 at all and and dogs might actually have a sort of evolved you know like puppy eyes to be irresistible to humans and it's it's essentially it's quite sort of cynical not cynical because it wasn't sort of driven by anything but it's an exploitation of human preferences so you can see it in in dog shelters so certain cute facial expressions that dogs make mean they're more likely to be adopted which is sort of mad isn't it Um, it it is but but i you know when we went to a shelter to to choose a dog i wasn't going away with an ugly one no you probably i mean raffi probably made uh really lovely puppy dog absolutely did which which totally belied the fact that she was going to bite you on an almost daily basis yeah yeah yeah. She's, but I mean, she's playing she's the long game. She's you right off. <laughs> <laughs> she's played it well. But our, our sort of temptation, not even temptation, compulsion to anthropomorphise is, is really interesting. So human brains have 
evolved to sort of try and understand other humans' intentions and thoughts and, and feelings, which is sort of, you know, theory of mind stuff. And we have these mirror neurons. And when you're trying to predict the actions of humans or animals or inanimate objects, frankly, say the same bits of the brain end up getting yeah. getting, getting activated. And and that's more pronounced if there's more similarity to to, to humans. So, you know, both sort of physically and and behaviorally and and it basically just means you you feel like the thing that you're looking at whether it's a human or not is worthy of your care or, yeah. or, or, or consideration but conversely the weird thing about it is that you end up thinking that they also are worthy of praise or punishment which probably isn't fair that's weird yeah why well so if you're looking at an if you're looking at an, a, an animal and it has had no idea what the bad behaviour is. But because you're anthropomorphizing, you think, oh no, it should I, I should punish it for doing a bad thing. It doesn't know it's done a bad thing. Wow. Well, until you've sort of trained it, but then yeah. I don't know, I don't know how I feel about that. I mean, my cat is incredibly badly behaved. <laughs> um, but I think has a lovely life. <laughs> so you know. <laughs> um, but it's it, yeah, it, back to sort of how we decide what's gonna get saved, there's no uniformity, there's there's yeah. no sort of received like wisdom there's no set way of, of of doing it and people have looked at it and said well there should be and because the, the the nub of it is should we try and save every species or is it is it basically better to let some just vanish because you've got scarce resources there's limited budgets to do this stuff and isn't it better in fact to focus on things that stand a that stand a better chance, basically back yeah. to winners. I mean, you can actually see, can't you? Because we're talking really about human influence on the environment. And, yeah. you know, so so there's no point saving things that are screwed by the human influence. In some ways, you want to save what, save uh, the things that, that kind of can be saved, assuming that we continue to do all the shit that we are currently doing. That is really it, isn't it? Because there are certain things where you go, if we totally change the way that humans behave and consume stuff, then yeah, you probably could save a load of other yeah. animals, but we're not going to. It's pretty clear. So let's in just some like, put like, those just, aside. Just, just accept it, yeah. and it's painful, and you, and it's a really, uh, from a PR point of view, a disaster to announce. Oh, by the way, <laughs> these caribou. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. yeah. We're just they're, they're, they're fucked, and there's nothing we can do. And if we do try and save them, we're just going to be ploughing money in. And you might be able to just about maintain that population, but in the end, they are just gonna yeah. they're just gonna die out. Yeah. And you should just accept it and, and try and, move and not on. get yeah, move on and think what can we actually what can we actually save? And it's sort of like a triage approach. Yeah. And it's really controversial within conservation. And it's almost like a like a word that you're not allowed to say. It's triage and it's yeah, people get very upset. But can't do it all, though, can we? You 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 want to optimize the the, the yeah. choices that you that you make about what you're trying to preserve. So there's a there's a mathematician, a Australian mathematician and conservation scientist called Hugh Possingham, who basically tried to just quantify this stuff instead of going on what we feel like. He's like, what is what's the cost of the project? What's the chance of success? How how distinctive or important is this species? What actions will benefit actually the most species and the and the ecosystem more more widely? Essentially, just how do you get the most bang for your buck? Yeah, which is perfect, which is reasonable. Like it is a reasonable approach, but it's quite hard to 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 sell. And currently, you see lot like just 
loads of money getting poured into what are ultimately long shots. Yeah. Um, or absolute wastes of time. Or, or, yeah. Yeah. Instead of just looking for sort of low cost, high success options. Yeah. Which sort of, like, it is obviously better to do that. But then, but, I mean, it depends how you're defining success, doesn't it? Because, I mean, this is what it comes down to is, is, you know, are we defining success as the thing we can achieve fairly easily? Or are we defining success as eradicating or as, as much as possible human influence on, you know, because we're talking about a catastrophic mm. human influence, aren't we, over the last, yeah. you know, few, yeah. really, I mean, it's not even thousands of years, is it? It's, it's well, hundreds of years. I think, you years. know, ag- agriculture's not been great, because that was the, the yeah, first time the, we started trying to shape at scale, the scale, it's only a recent thing, the scale yeah, of... I, I mean, yeah, truth be told, it's the Industrial Revolution. Since the yeah, Industrial Revolution yeah. is when everything's really been screwed. Yeah. Um, yeah, it's just but we're not going back up. to pre-industrial no, no, revolution. No, 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 we're not. I think it's it's uh, it's just all about pragmatism and accepting that there is some stuff that we're not going to be able to undo, and it's better to just move on and focus your your resources and your time on the places where you can have where you can have an impact. And also, what I would really like personally is just some transparency. Just like why explain to me why are we choosing this project and this species to try and save. And it cannot be, well, we did a poll and pe- people like these or we know we're going to be able to raise money for that. It's not good enough, I don't Yeah, think. but I think you've got more of an attention span for this than most people. I, I, I agree. Talking I, of which... I agree. We should yeah. probably move on to, you know, to some kind of mid-roll break. Yes, yes. Okay, yeah, fine. <laughs> we're going to come back and discuss the key issues around choosing favourites when it comes to animals, what conservationists could be doing better, and we'll be asking today's expert, Rebecca Nesbitt, today's question, which endangered animals should we choose to save? Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. And we are back. All right, so if, in general, the animals we're saving are just the likeable ones, yeah, uh, who's deciding which is the most likeable? Yeah, I asked Rebecca this. Who decides in conservation really needs to be reconsidered because currently there's a few people often running wildlife conservation charities and then donors, sometimes the large donors, guiding this agenda. But... There's a very colonial attitude and I think we do need to have mechanisms for more voices to be heard. 
There have been some changes, not enough, but they are continuing in um, parts of Africa, for example. There's a move to involve more communities in decisions about conservation, but they tend to be within very narrow parameters. Uh, New Zealand is another example that there's now increasing recognition of the important role that Maori play in conservation, but when Maori are being asked to draw up conservation plans, for example, they're still approved by the New Zealand Department of Conservation. Western law still seems to sit above them. So we're working on this, but we really haven't reached the end point yet. So basically, the West is um, dictating the global vision of what's important and what's not. Yeah, which animals to save, how to save them. And and that, that is... That is really important, I think, because you know who decides. You don't. You don't really want a situation where it's just a few a few people running big conservation charities. It doesn't doesn't even make any scientific sense, I don't think. And the fact that it is by and large rich Westerners, yeah, guiding the path and imposing their vision on, because they're, those animals are not in the West, are they? They're not. No. No. They're not, you know, they're in Africa, Asia, Australia, South America, I guess, sort of. And it's it's quite easy to see why the global south, on the whole, does not have a good relationship with conservation programmes. Yeah. Because they're just imposed on them. And often, without much thought given to how that's going to impact the the human population. And and so it is, it's this sort of quite colonial attitude and, and and totally also to, we'll come on to this actually totally ignoring the fact that a lot of sort of indigenous peoples living in 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 forests and 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 and, and ecosystems that we're talking about they have this really rich knowledge about sustainability that we just aren't mining and not taking advantage of yeah just sort of coming in and going no no you well you're gonna have to move out of here now yeah yeah uh, and, 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 and we're gonna take and, over yeah, and, and look after gonna, this properly. we're gonna take over and and again, that is something else. Uh, we're, sorry, I thought I was finished with being wound up, <laughs> but I'm not because we are obsessed with protected areas. So protected areas are essentially just places where you go. Okay, we're putting a fence around this, metaphorical or or, or literal, yeah. and uh, any people are in here, out, and we're just going to leave it, and that's job done. And so I think. This month, I think, yeah, conservation leaders are meeting in in China from around the world, and I think they're going to agree this. We want thirty percent of the Earth's surface to be protected by twenty thirty. Okay. Whatever, that's the target. And you're like, well, that sounds good, but <laughs> when people actually look at protected areas, like, well, you're not doing anything in them. You're just sort of leaving them, and like, like that's job done, and it isn't, and and they're not they're not effective. Right. It's just sort of... So it sounds like you're doing something great. It sounds like you're doing something fantastic. And actually, you're not. And so when you look at... um, People have looked at restricted to sort of wetlands and um, and birds, actually water birds. So you've got to be slightly careful about how much you extrapolate. But when you look at the the populations of, of water birds in these protected areas versus the same species in unprotected areas, it's no difference. Doesn't doesn't have doesn't have an impact. You're like, well, so what are we doing? Is that because like, they fly over the fence? Yeah, well, presumably it's slightly harder to keep them in. <laughs> but it, it it's just not being thought through. 
it just feels like it's a good it's just a good thing to say. Yeah. So things get agreed at like, you know, you have some summit, you know, yeah. they sit around at the table in the in the business suits and say, yeah. this is what we'll do. 30% by 2030 sounds yeah. good. Tell somebody to go off and make that happen. Yeah. And nobody's actually looking at whether that's really yeah, and you go, oh, oh is impactful. That, is that actively benefiting the wildlife? Don't know. Yeah. Um, and then when you look Brilliant. at it, no, probably not. Brilliant. Not not that it's it's not bad for it. But it's not particularly doing anything to, yeah. you know, to like grow populations that are in, in in decline. For example, yeah, okay. What a load of bollocks! Everywhere you look in conservation. <laughs> <laughs> so I asked Rebecca where these conservation conversations are taking place. If you are going for that idea that well, we're going to protect all the giraffes and all the habitat they rely on, then. It is still a decision imposed by, probably by conservationists, likely of Western origin, with huge implications for local people who likely haven't had a say. And I'm now thinking of rhino poaching, for example. There's a lot of militarised conservation that poachers sometimes are shot on site. The guards have a, they're instructed, suspected poachers, you can shoot them, which many people would argue is very, very problematic. And you have, understandably, lots of local people thinking, well, the rhinos' lives are valued more highly than the lives of local people. And a big difference between Western conservation and indigenous conservation, although, of course, both vary hugely, to some extent, Westerners might be more interested in preservation. Let's just save things exactly as they are. Whereas indigenous peoples might be more interested in sustainable use. We can harvest these species as long as we do it sustainably. So are you in a position now where you're rethinking your octopus choice? In that you're being subjective, you like the octopus. I mean, it's not cuddly, but, you know, it's, uh, it's impressive. Yeah, I think I was being flippant when I was talking about the octopus. I'm not going to try and save the octopus because the octopus, as it stands, does not need saving. Doesn't need they, you. Uh, yeah. No, it. it uh, obviously, we we eat a lot of octopus, and a lot of octopus get caught as uh, as bycatch as well. But their life cycle is very short. They breed. There's not really. I mean, aside from the sort of bigger issue within the sea, the octopus is not is not massively yeah. vulnerable. I think, in fairness. I, I do spend a bit of time kind of reading about this stuff anyway, but the more that I, the more, the more that I read about our current approach to conservation, the more I think it is just wrong. So, you know, I mean, we just just talked about it, but this kind of idea of fortress conservation, which is effectively to saying, well, if we're going to protect a forest or, or biodiversity in this forest, you just have to totally isolate it. Mm. And so you get rid of all the indigenous people and the local communities, and you don't give them any say in what's happening. You just try and separate them out. Um, is is just really bad. I think that you can make an, a really strong argument, in fact, that ecotourism sounds great uh, and Western-style conservation harms wildlife, damages the environment and and displaces and often like criminalizes local people and it's totally uh, it's not that it's not well intentioned but they're they're fucking it up right and you've got to somehow you've sort of you've got to decolonize 
conservation. That's really the thing you have to do. That's really interesting. So what you're effectively saying is our question this week is quite badly framed. But yes. Yeah, I think I think it in might in terms be. of like what animals should we choose I, to I, save. I, I, I we're mean, not going to terrible way to approach. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's. I think it's a good question because it is the way that you instinctively want to approach it. Yeah, but it's actually a, it is. It's a really bad. It's a bad question and not a question we should be trying to answer. But that being said, if you are going to look at a, an area and try and work out how best to how best to look after it for the future in a sustainable way. You should speak to people who live there because often if you give them any of the money that you're pumping into your sort of Western projects, yeah. that for a fraction of that, they'll produce better results because they just have a better understanding of that of that's that based on of that ecosystem. Tr- that's trying based that on, out. Yes, exactly. Yeah. yeah. And so it might not be it might not have the kind of you know, like the scientific basis, but that doesn't mean it's less valuable. And it is probably better, in fact, than, than than what than what we've been doing. And if you are going to go into places and you are going to have protected areas, then you need to start thinking about what what are you actually going to do in there? Like what what sort of rules are you going to have in mm. place? How are you going to what sort of restoration are you going to try and achieve? And 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 how? And then talk to people about how that might about how that might happen. And it, and it is happening, I think. As Rebecca was saying, like there's there's various areas where that is happening a, a, a bit more, but it's not enough. It's, right. it's, it's definitely not enough. It's kind of heading in the right direction. So, did yeah. we ask Rebecca our terrible question? Yeah, we we did ask Rebecca the, the, the terrible question, and I think you'll like her answer. I think it's not up to me to decide which species to save. I can say some things that I think are important to put into this decision. One of them is long-term viability. Actually, if the population has dropped so low that we're probably only going to keep this going for, for decades, maybe that's not where we should be focusing our resources. I think species that have very large ecological impacts, something like an elephant, for example, that is shaping the ecosystem, that would be on my priority to save. I also want to save species of great cultural importance, so I think we focus too much on the charismatic species, but I don't want to completely move away from that. There are reasons that we want to save these species. And ultimately, I would like to see us bringing more scientific evidence into this decision, but not just scientific evidence, realising that science can't tell us what to think. Science can predict what might happen, and that's very important, but actually it is our values that tell us what to do with that scientific evidence. And we all have different values, and I would like to see many more people engaged in that discussion, people from different cultures, people from different backgrounds. I absolutely love that from Rebecca because I feel like that's my entire worldview. I feel like I, I think that should apply to everything we ever talk about, which is the science can tell you lots of things about what what might happen if you do various, yeah. if you take various approaches. But ultimately, you then have to decide what what to do with that. The science, the science does not tell you the answer. That's bang on. Yeah. Um, are you, you and Rebecca are going to like go for a drink or something, and you know, just. Like... I, I, I think we might have a good time actually. <laughs> yeah, I'm busy that night. Actually. Yeah, I wonder if she get a word in edgeways. <laughs> <laughs> um, so what's our um, what's the conclusion then? Yeah, we're not we're, we're not picking an animal to to save. 
No, we shouldn't pick an animal to shouldn't save. Shouldn't pick an animal to save. Shouldn't uh, pick a plant to save. And we've got to rethink our whole approach to this. Yeah. Um, and it's been going on for ever. Why well. is nobody fixing this? Like, this is my big problem with this whole thing. It's like, it's very clear from our relatively short discussion of this mm. that there's a massive issue. And yeah. why is it not being addressed? And why why are people not standing up and shouting about this more? Uh, I think the the emotional element, the, the sort of the, the the human sort of the public element of the public perception of conservation. I think it's quite hard to tackle because people want to be able. Is to, there also you, a want, sense to, you of, want to adopt an orangutan or whatever? Yeah, it is, I you, know, you, I know. But isn't there also a sense of well, you know, the people who work in this sort of conservation thing are kind of. You know, they they almost don't want to rock the boat too much because actually they're doing quite well without producing great results. Is that fair to say? Uh, yeah, I think that is fair to say. I think so. There's th- a this sense is, of this is know, almost the opposite of a results business. Yeah, and that and that that is mad. And and you you can argue about what the results should be. Like it doesn't necessarily have to be. We're going to try and grow this population by. But X, you want but... to see these these organisations like WWF or whatever standing up and saying, do you know what? We've got to change our whole yeah. way of thinking and acting. Mm. Not like, would you like to sponsor an orangutan this year? Yeah. Or, or just like any other business. If you're taking this money in, you'd want to go. So, what, and what did we? What what happened with that? Like, what was the? What was the? Well, impact? they'll be able to tell you stuff like that. They'll, they'll be able to say, yeah, "Oh, you know, we established it, it, this area, or you know, we've, we've yeah, we protected, protected this area. This well, fucking forest. done. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> like, um, yeah. So it, it, but we need to stop falling for that, really. Don't I we? think? I, I think so. Yeah. I, I like so. Years ago, uh, when I was at university, my sort of big project was on the uh, conservation program of the. Uh, Arabian oryx, which oh, yeah. is a, a species that went extinct in the wild and then was reintroduced. And it was heartbreaking because at the time they were reintroducing uh, oryx back into the wild in, in, in North Africa and they were very happy and they were like, this is great. We've, we've built up this breeding population in captivity and now we're, now we're releasing them back out. And I was like, but you, you haven't tackled the, any of the reasons that they were going extinct yeah, yeah, in, in the yeah. first place. You've just sort of gone, oh, that's bad. So you just set Let's them up to fail more. again, basically. And then, you, and then you just put them back out again. And that, like, it's sort of, I guess, good for me because I was right, but <laughs> bad for the Oryx because that is what happened. And then, and so then they had to go back and now they have successfully reintroduced and they are a viable population. That's good news. And they've been up upgraded in the, um, in, in the, in, in the red list. And that's, yeah. that's, that's, that's Fantastic, but this is you know this is only this is twenty twenty years ago. I can't um, believe they didn't talk to you so... first. But you know what I mean. I'm just a goon. I'm just a goon writing a thing. Yeah, like uh, I don't know that much about it, but it was really obvious to me. <laughs> like, but if you haven't gone out and said to the poachers, oh by the way, <laughs> or provided like an alternative for the poachers, yeah, or even spoken to the poachers, they're just going to poach them again. They're going to be delighted to see the orcs back <laughs> yeah. back on the scene because they can because they can make money and they need yeah. to live and you have to understand that stuff and and I think conservation often ignores the the, the sort of the, the human pressures that are being exerted yeah so anyway I've been yeah I've effectively I've been angry about this for twenty years and you can probably sense it <laughs> <laughs> let's stop talking now yeah okay I need to go and have a uh, just go and have a little lie down compressed. <laughs> Eureka is a stack production presented by Dr. Michael Brooks and Rick Edwards. The production team is Temi Adebayo, Katie Baxter, Luke Moore and Charlie Morgan. Sound designed by Katie Baxter. Special thanks to today's expert, Rebecca Nesbitt.
Please subscribe and rate wherever you listen to your podcast. It does make a massive difference. You can also find us on Twitter at EurekaPod. Thanks very much. Eureka is a Stack production and part of the Acast Creator Network.